Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. Well, it's the middle of July, which means we're in the middle of summer, which means we're not really that far away from the start of the 2021-2022 school year. For a little bit of a status report, uh, I sat down with Quinn Perry. She is the Policy and Government Affairs Director for the Idaho School Boards Association. We talk about back to school and what she's hearing from the field from trustees across the state. And we talk a little bit about politics and we talk a little bit about the indoctrination task force. Here's what she had to say. Well, Quinn, thank you for taking some time this week to talk about the summer and what's ahead for schools in the fall. A lot we could get to, but let's start with where we are right now. We're barely a month away from the start of school in a lot of communities. What are you hearing at this point? What are the, the questions and concerns you're getting from members at this stage? As far as the Delta variant and COVID or in just general, reopening. Just in terms of reopening yeah. and trying you to know, get back to something more normal. It it has been a, a rough year, I think, for sure. folks. So I think part of it is just excited about, you know, returning to some sense of normalcy. Um, you saw, you know, most school districts and charter schools towards the end of the school year, you know, opening predominantly for full-time in-person instruction. And I think that was a, a really good finish line to cross the year with. Very different than how we all started. Um, You know, folks are still anxious about COVID-19, definitely, particularly because, you know, the the kids under 12 don't necessarily have access to the vaccine unless they're perhaps enrolled in some kind of trial. So I definitely think, you know, folks are keeping an eye on the infection rate. Um, I think that they're um, hopeful that they can start the school year how they ended it, which is, you know, full-time in-person instruction. So I think folks are um, cautiously optimistic about the school year going into it. And there are the the two big tracks that trustees are watching closely and wrestling closely, wrestling with. Yeah. The first being the status of kids, where kids are right now in terms of what do they lose during the pandemic in terms of learning, what are their challenges in terms of uh, mental health issues. I mean, you got to be hearing concerns from the, the field. Absolutely. Um, I know, you know, folks used um, are using a lot of their COVID relief dollars and having summer programs for learning loss. So I know that towards the end of the year, folks were identifying and targeting those individuals who needed more remediation for the summer, uh, particularly in that, you know, especially that K-3 reading, literacy, all of that. Very important to trustees. And I think once we go in and we start seeing, you know, fall Idaho reading indicators scores is going to be a better picture about that learning loss. Um, Student mental health has absolutely risen to the top of the minds of trustees. It's already been Mm -hmm. a high priority, but I think think for trustees in particular, um, it was... It, it was alarming to them to see how COVID-19 and, and the, really the impact and the lack of that social structure that the school provides has had an impact on their students. Sure. Um, you know, and, and Idaho in general has already, you know, I think it's like the fifth highest state for suicide rates, especially among our youth. And, and that was even before the pandemic. That was before the pandemic. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm certain that it has exacerbated those rates. And, you know, I think uh, trustees in general 
uh, really understand that their public school is is more than just an environment for learning. Mm-hmm. It's you know where they get healthcare referrals and it's where they get these social um, you know interactions with adults that care about them. The whole community focal yes. point that we really saw come to the fore during absolutely the what, we, what we lost during the pandemic. Yeah, I mean. I don't know when the last time you've driven around like the state of Idaho is, but if you go to any small rural town, almost every single epicenter is the school in the town. And, you know, so when there are, you know, hindrances or closures or like that lack of, you know, extracurricular after school programs, et cetera, uh, we know that that has an impact on kids. So one shining thing that came through the pandemic was this sort of, uh, consensus that public schools operate than more than just an educational environment for our kids. We are, we tend to be this sort of wraparound uh, services for all the right. children in Idaho. And I think mental and health, social, emotional, yes. uh, meals, yeah. you know. meals, yes. And, and again, just an adult that cares about them, that's right. checking right. in on them and um, ensuring that they're where they need to be in order to succeed in their life. So, yeah. You touched on the Delta variant. We've seen the increases in case numbers nationally. We're starting to see the numbers creep up in Idaho. Talk about how that factors into this return to something more normal this fall. I will. Yeah. (laughs) I will admit that um, the words COVID nineteen have um, have been less spoken of this July than last July. So uh, I will admit that. Um, I will tell you that. um, Like I said, we're cautiously. I think trustees are cautiously optimistic. Um, I think a lot of them you know, are looking to their community for how the community wants the school to operate, to act, and what COVID-19 measures the community is expecting from their school district or their charter school. So, I mean, I think trustees are keeping an eye on the infection rate. I know school administrators are still, you know, frequently checking in with their local health district, hospitals, etc. And of course, it's it is going to be different, I think, for like the junior high, high school kids than it will be in elementary solely because, you know, there isn't an access to kids under the age of 12 for a vaccine right now. So, so even I though think, you've got low vaccination numbers for junior high school and high school kids, at least they have access to it def- as opposed to the 12 and unders. Exactly. You know, I think, you know, uh, parents have a choice uh, if they're 12 and up, whether or not they want to get their child immunized. Um So I think that will play into it, right, is that at least for those um, age groups of children, that's available to that family, right? Um, For the kids under 12, um, I think you'll see an extra layer of precautions, such as extra social distancing, still spacing out meal times. There may be coming. I haven't seen any, but I know uh, nationally um, there's been a discussion about, you know, still, you know, this idea of uh, masking if you're unvaccinated, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so there still may be, you know, a level of uh, facial covering or requirements. I could see that happening for perhaps the, I guess it would be fifth grade and under, right? Because I right. think you're sixth grade. Um, so I, I still think that those are options available to school board members. I think as of what this week, no school district has a current uh, facial covering. And you would know better than I, Kevin. A, a mandate. Yes, correct. Because now correct. Boise's gone to a right. national approach. Um, 
I think even though we've seen, um, you know, school districts uh, back away from, you know, requiring facial coverings as a condition of, of attendance, um, you know, they may reinstate those if the infection rate goes higher because the highest priority of uh, the school district and the charter school board and administration team is having kids in person uh, for learning. So I could see, um, and the nice thing is that, you know, when all of this was happening last year, you know, when, um, when, you know, once the closure happened and all of us started looking to the fall, it felt so foreign to create hybrid environments, to create these online programs. But those are all set up now. Um, people have gotten used to what that could look like if it needs to go into that. So I think, I think school districts and charter schools are like much more ready to pivot when they need to. Right. As At opposed least you're to, not inventing or devising yes, you're something. Not <laughs> you're reestablishing something or reinstating something. And, you know, I, I still think that predominantly, you know, we know that kids learn better when they're in person every day. Mm -hmm. But I think most every school district and charter school that had an online option is going to maintain that as an option for families because there are still families who are not comfortable sending their kids back to in-person instruction and that's totally fair. Um, you know, as public schools, we're supposed to be customer service organizations. Uh, we're supposed to serve all of our community. So, um, having that as an option for families who maybe aren't comfortable coming back to the school district in person, especially if there isn't, you know, that added extra precaution of like a facial covering um, will be available to them. And I think that's really important. So, you know, as we look to the Delta variant, I think the biggest thing will be being able to pivot quickly. Uh, and I think, you know, we've, we're much more able to do that than we were a year ago. Right. So... Let's talk about staff vaccinations, because as we sit yeah. here recording, mm -hmm. it's Thursday morning, there's a rally on the Statehouse steps about is, vaccines yes. and staff uh, vaccine mandates. The issue right now is mostly about the hospitals. Sure. But school districts and charters could do the same thing. I mean, there's nothing in the executive Correct. order, there's nothing in the law that uh, would preclude school districts from doing the same thing with staff. What are you hearing from your members on this? You know, um, we were so lucky that um, K-12 staff uh, were one of the first people who were opened up to be eligible to receive the vaccine. Um, I think that was hugely critical in the success of being able to really open full-time in person for most school district towards the end of the year. Um, so when that happened, we did get a lot of questions about well, can we require the vaccine? Should we require the vaccine? So, um, you know, we worked with legal counsel to draft um, really guidance for them based on EEOC guidance that says, you know, the law basically does say that, right. you know, you can allow uh, a requirement for uh, immunizations. And, uh, but, you know, you still have to have all those reasonable accommodations. I mean, there are people who can't take a vaccine because they're immunocompromised. Um, there are people who have religious objections and just philosophical objections. And um, so, you know, our guidance was always, if you're going to require vaccines, be ready for those conversations with employees who aren't able and you are required to accommodate at least, you know, the uh, religious and uh, immunocompromised medical exemptions. Um, 
To this day, I don't think any school district or charter school has required a vaccine. I think instead you'll see, um, not I haven't heard so much in Idaho, but I have heard from colleagues across the country. You know, um, some school districts said, "Well, if you uh, are vaccinated, then we'll afford you one extra." day of sick leave, kind of like we've seen the governor do for state employees who choose to get vaccinated. Um, You know, I think, you know, other incentives have more buy-in from employees. Um, And to be quite frank, um, you know, not every school district has an HR person who really has the time to like require a vaccine and then go through all those exemptions of course that were afforded so i think in the long run it was almost easier to provide to just really heavily recommend and provide resources to their staff in order to get vaccinated but to this moment i don't believe anyone is requiring a vaccine for their staff and in this political environment for locally elected trustees to make that decision that would be a tough it would i mean think about the pushback that trustees saw for facial coverings i mean you know um the sort of vitriol that's happening in communities all across the country and and probably the world about you know how to handle this pandemic um, has has still created a lasting scar I think on trustees I mean we've talked about how some school board members were being threatened uh, they were being followed um, you know I think almost every school board member has received you know emails really kind of just land blasting them on um, on the choices that they've had to make for their students and their staff so I definitely get the sense that trustees are perhaps hesitant and uh, to, to mandate such a thing. And of course, we're seeing the rhetoric coming from the state level about even just the hospitals doing it. Right. And so um, I think trustees and administrators are paying attention to that. And I think instead, uh, their path really is more towards providing opportunity for their staff to get immunized. You know, it's the same thing with a flu shot. I mean, some school districts have a clinic come with a bus and they offer a flu shot to individuals and their staff. And I think you would hear that predominantly a lot of staff take advantage of that type of opportunity. And so I think you'll see the same with the COVID vaccine. Let me shift gears to the surplus. We don't have the exact figure (laughs) yet, but we know it's going to be big. We know it's going to be 800 million (laughs) or thereabouts. You've been trying to make the case, ISB has been trying to make the case that uh, you've got a problem with classified we salaries. Do. Yes. How do you make that case compared to all of the other varying competing yeah. interests that are going to line up for this? Uh, for this, surplus? You know, some of the rhetoric that I think you'll see, you know, not only coming from ISBA, but from other education stakeholders is, you know, there's kind of two sort of investments in our public schools, which is there are the system-oriented ones, and then there are the student-oriented ones. They all benefit students, but they just don't, uh, you know, directly necessarily go to students. But classified salaries is one that we've been pushing for years. Um, I think as of 2018 or 2019, when Tim Hill was still the director at the State Department of Education um, for school finance was, I think we pay, uh, the state pays $1 for every $1.79 that school districts are paying for their classified staff. And, 
you know, the pandemic has just exacerbated that because you've seen, you know, I know that labor shortages are prevalent in probably every level of industry right now. Um, but the difference between McDonald's being able to pay $15 an hour, you know, Boise restaurants able to, to pay 15 to $18 an hour, um, school districts aren't able to do that without some sort of property tax levy on their taxpayers or dipping into uh, what we know as discretionary funds, which are the flexible dollars available to school districts and charter schools, um, which really often go to those, um, you know, making up teacher salaries, making up full day kindergarten, making up these other areas um, in which um, the state doesn't necessarily provide full support for. So, um, we're at this, you know, pivotal moment where we may be losing employees to places like a fast food restaurant, to an Amazon warehouse. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, classified is such a broad term. It's basically anyone who's not certificated, right? So it's anyone from food service workers to bus drivers, but all the way up to your human IT. resource, your IT, your your um, your school business officer. So the person who's creating and setting the budget for the public school. Um, all of those are based on one you know, one salary formula that really doesn't reflect the current need of the staffing, right? So um, we're reimbursed the same for a bus driver as we are for somebody who's controlling millions of public dollars, mm-hmm. right? So um, we have tasked both both the superintendent uh, of public instruction, uh, Superintendent Ipara's office, and the legislature to have a thoughtful look at how that plays um, into public school because, you know, all of these are essential and critical to operating, right? We need good bus drivers. We need good food service workers. We need good paraprofessionals. We need good school business officials because all of those services provide a direct benefit to kids. And you touched on the big picture of this in terms of funding, whether we're talking about uh, classified salary or whether we're talking about all day kinder. Right. At some point, anything that the state funds in these areas is property tax relief at the local level. I mean, I agree. Yes. (laughs) We've got a historic surplus. We've got historic angst about property taxes and property values. This is either a big opportunity or if it goes south, it's a missed opportunity. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, two things. Yes. Um, I could sit down with lawmakers and I could go over the varying areas that, you know, communities are asking school districts for these things, right? They're asking for full day kindergarten. They're asking for, um, you know, lower property taxes. So I think they absolutely fit hand in hand. So we could easily make the argument to why that surplus could go entirely to public schools. I think that it absolutely could offset property taxes, but I have to. I have to say, um, school trustees, administrators, communities. Um, we know that there are other issues in Idaho that need to be addressed too. For example, affordable housing. I mean, you know, you go to Blaine County, and 
a classified staff member who's making, you know, eight fifty nine dollars an hour, maybe soon unable to afford housing in their own community. Right. They may be commuting from yes. Shoshone or and Jerome. It, and or it's someplace. the exact same thing where, um, you know, students, like that has a direct benefit to students. We know that there are many students who have faced homelessness in this past year. So um, while it could make the easy case that, you know, we could use the money and it would provide property tax relief, um, we also know that there are other issues facing Idahoans that also have a direct benefit on kids. So, um, you know, we would love to see uh, a change to, of course, full day kindergarten. That is huge for school board members. Um, They hear routinely from their communities that that's something that parents and and guardians want for their kids. Um, a lot of them have, you know, barriers to paying 300, sometimes upwards of 300 a month for for their child to attend a full day kindergarten program. So funding full day kindergarten is a huge benefit to to communities, to school districts, and of course the taxpayers. Um, but also uh, classified salaries is another investment, which you know is less. I don't know. I hope I say don't say this in a controversial way. It's, it's less sexy, right? It's less hard, it's harder for lawmakers to go home to their constituents and talk about how they, you know, increase the pay for necessarily for school bus drivers. But these are members of their community, and in most situations, the school district is the largest employer in that community. So, and in a lot of cases, these classified employees there are the connection between yes. the school and the students. Absolutely, I mean, it's not just teachers. Absolutely, I mean they're they're, they're in the building every day. The I mean. Go to Rigby, where we just had an unfortunate event where a student um, brought a firearm. The custodian was injured in that, and that custodian was likely trying to help uh, mitigate what was happening in that response. And so, you know, I just, I just want to say, you know, all of the, all of the employees that we hire in the school and our public schools are critical to, you know. A good janitor is cleaning every day. They're they're making sure that it's a safe, clean environment for kids to attend school. A paraprofessional is in the classroom working directly with the kids. And then, of course, like a school business official is making sure they're setting the budget. They're making sure that they're investing in these programs that benefit their students. So um, I can make the case for why all of them are essential to kids. But before we get there, before we get to 2022, uh, we're in the middle of the summer and we've got this uh, indoctrination task force going on. I, I have to ask, ISBA made the decision a few weeks ago to to step aside, to step off of mm-hmm. the, the task force. What's been the fallout on that since early June when you made that decision? You know, um, the fallout has been, you know, <laughs> arguably now there's almost nobody on the committee who is who is directly connected to a public school. Right. Um, other than, you know, there there are there is at least one trustee still serving, and um, I, I don't think there's any current administrators on the committee. But you know, people who have served, of course, as an administrator in a right. public school. So so one of the fallouts is. You know, public schools are these like huge, complex organizations. I mean, nobody is expected to know all the answers, 
right? I mean, uh, our policy manuals for public schools can be upwards of a thousand pages. I mean, mm-hmm. you get education law books of just education statutes, and they are huge. So nobody's expected to know all of the answers, but when there isn't somebody there guiding how there already are laws in place, for example, for curriculum inspection, right? Um, Then there's nobody there to kind of guide that discussion to kind of pointing to the solutions that already exist in Idaho law or administrative rule or just in local practice. Um, But, you know, the fallout from our members has not been high. Um, You know, I think... This was such a tough legislative session, and I will tell you, when the public school's budget went down, the, the teacher's division budget went down whenever that was in April, right. it feels like ages ago, you know, my members were, were so upset. I mean... And I say that lightly. I mean, they they were they were they were mad. They were upset. They were confused. Um, you know, I think for trustees, especially where you know the spotlight is turned to them. You know, again, like school board meetings are the most popular meetings. Um, you know, from summer to fall. Um, you know, they they had invested in making sure that their kids could be in in person, and you know they had to make these tough calls in order to make sure that the school was still operating. And you know, at the end of the day, by April, you know, I think by that time, every school district was open full time in person. Um, it was a huge hurdle that it took to get there. So then to see, you know, it pivot to this, you know, rhetoric where we were indoctrinating children, and then it, the budget going down was really kind of it felt like a slap in the face to them and um and i think it has felt continued with this indoctrination task force which is pushing and and like you know kind of meddling in this idea that communities don't trust their public schools i mean communities literally elect these people to govern their school districts teachers administrators you know the classified staff individuals are all community members in these legislative districts and i think for them it definitely felt like um, you know they had worked so hard. It was a tumultuous year, and then they were thanked by you know some sort of misinformation campaign that ultimately ended up you know killing killing the public schools budget, delaying the session even further, and then of course spurring into this new uh, rhetoric about indoctrination, critical race theory, etc. So, as you watch it from afar, like a lot of stakeholders are doing at sure. this point. <laughs> Do you have any expectations about where this is going in August? You know, I don't have any expectations. I mean, to be blunt, a lot of the concerns that I've heard from the indoctrination task force are already there. Like, the solutions are already there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I, when you heard the, the parents testify, um, you know, early on in that meeting in July, Was it June or June? June. It was the June meeting. Thank you. Um, You know, a lot of them talked about curriculum, right? They talked about a lesson that they they were uncomfortable with or they disagreed with. And I think it was um, Isaac Moffat, who was a school administrator, asked, well, did you bring it up with the teacher? Did you bring it up with the administrator? And almost always the answer was no. And, And 
I'm flabbergasted by that because as the policy director for ISBA, you know, that means that I'm helping school districts adopt model school policy for their community. One of the top ones that we highly recommend is a grievance procedure. Mm -hmm. You know, we have these processes in place for literally anyone to file a complaint with the public school, and we have steps in how that gets addressed. And... And it happens. I mean, you know. Grievance all across the map. It doesn't have to be curriculum. It can be. Literally anything. anything. I mean, and it happens, you know. Um, So, you know, when I hear that stuff, it's disappointing because nobody's looking to the solutions that already exist um, in our school system, which, you know, I would say grievance procedures is one of them. Same with curriculum inspection. I mean, literally anyone could call their public school, set up an appointment with their curriculum director or, of course, in a lot of small rural districts, it's probably like the building principal or the superintendent, and they can come look at every piece of material that's going in front of their child. Um, And we do that because we are, like I said, we're customer service organizations, and we always err on the side of transparency. We don't have anything to hide. Um, So, again, I look to these things that already exist in in law and in rule um, and in school policy. Um, You know, we've seen it all, and we've set our school districts up for success, and I just feel like none of that's being addressed in the committee. So... I think what you'll end up seeing is an attempt to expand a little bit further, like on House Bill 377, um, which I think will bring up constitutional concerns because it's essentially a ban on free speech. Um, so, uh, you know, and even, um, you know, you've seen talks about, you know, putting a camera on every school teacher. And, you know, I just don't I don't see those as real uh they're not thoughtful solutions to the supposed problem that we've seen. Um, so I, I have yet to see, and, and, and I'm anxious to hear what uh, the committee proposes as a solution because, um, you know, I have ideas. Um, for example, it's not required to have a grievance procedure. I guarantee you almost every school district and charter school has one, but if they if they found or they they isolated or identified schools that didn't, well, you should you could create a law that essentially requires that a school district adopt a grievance procedure. So, um, those are the solutions that I would suggest to the committee. Um, but I haven't been consulted on, you know, what the solutions are. So, well, Quinn, it was great catching up with you about uh, the summer and where we go from here. We'll have to do this again closer to the session. Sounds good. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks. Again, that was Quinn Perry, the Policy and Government Affairs Director for the Idaho School Boards Association. That'll wrap it up for the podcast, and that will wrap it up for this week. I did want to flag a couple of stories at idahoednews.org if you haven't already read them. Uh, Sammy Edge did an update on early education programs in the state and status report on a couple of programs in the wake of the legislature's decision to turn down that $6 million a year federal early education grant. Look for that story. In my interview with Quinn Perry, I talked a little bit about vaccinations and whether school boards can or will uh, require teachers and staff to get vaccinations. I have a more in-depth story on that subject also at idahoednews.org. We want to check out those stories from this week and keep an eye on our website next week because we will have stories uh, whenever news breaks in education policy and education politics. We'll have it there at idahoednews.org. 
You can also follow us on Twitter at IdahoEdNews. We tweet out our links and any bulletins on breaking news. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook and join the conversation there. And you can check back here next Friday for another edition of the podcast. Until then, this is Kevin Richard. Have a great weekend. Bye.